All right. Here we go. All right, all right, all right. Ooh, ooh. students. It's time for medicine. F1 pod. F1 pod. F1 pod. Hey, Shade. How are you doing today? Hey, Zach. What's up? Um, everything's good. We're um, actually starting to uh, go into the hospital now. It's a mixture of like preclinical classes and um, actual learning clinical uh, exam skills, which is super exciting. Um, how's, how's life with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm actually getting ready to go back to Stanford. Um, we started the quarter virtually. So mm -hmm. I, um, I visited my family in Jamaica and then I visited some friends in the DR. So I'm heading back uh, tomorrow. Very jealous of the, the weather right now. <laughs> it's so cold here in Boston. Um, yeah, so um, who are we interviewing today? So we'll be interviewing Brian Fleischer, who is a um, current MS2 at Yale School of Medicine, and he's originally from Ghana. And I'm so excited for us to um, put out this episode because Brian, he's just such a very exciting person. I would call him an enigma. He has so <laughs> many interests that are just, <laughs> and he has so many energy too. So I'm very excited for people to get to know Brian a little bit better and to hear about his F1 doctor's journey. Okay. Got it. So I guess for our listeners um, this week, um, how would you describe Brian in one sentence, maybe? Like, what are some of the words you will use and what should they be looking forward to in the uh, upcoming episode? Hmm. I would say that um, Brian on paper is Brian in real life. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh -huh. yeah, what you get is what you see. He really brings, like I said, so much energy and um, I'm very excited for people to, to, to listen to the episode and to, um, you know, learn some gems from Brian because he, he does really share a lot of um, inspirational things on this episode. I can definitely echo that. I don't really know Brian personally, uh, but after we recorded the episode, I just felt really energized. Uh, and I felt like he emanated, the energy he emanated to all of us are just re really energizing. I felt like I really want to do so much good in the world as a doctor and i am so excited to get this episode started all right so let's get started <laughs> so i guess we can like get stuff started so this is just going to be a casual conversation don't think of it like an interview we just really want to get some insights from you we want to hear like who is brian why is brian here you know what can you tell us that will, you know, in, that will make things better for the people listening. So just take it easy, low pressure. Mm -hmm. We won't, we won't bring the the spicy questions. <laughs> so I guess I'll I'll just start by saying how I came to know Brian. Mm -hmm. I found out about you last summer. I think it was it was definitely after admission season. Yeah, it was. I think I don't know which month, maybe June or so when like the whole pandemic was getting like really crazy and then we weren't sure if we were going to be able to start med school and I was feeling like I was feeling really overwhelmed and I was trying to find somebody else who probably was going through the same experience because for me I was an international student and I was currently or at the time I was outside of the United States mm -hmm. and all the embassies were closed and I was like are you telling me that after all this I'm not starting medical school this year. And it was just a really tough time. And so I tried, I think most international students who were going to start med school that year, they seem to be in the US. I was like, you guys are so like fortunate. Like you don't have to stress about the whole embassy thing. Um, but then I was on YouTube and I was watching every video about international medical students. And I saw a panel with um, uh, her name on Instagram is the Pretty Pre-Med. Yeah, that's my friend from undergrad, Sean. And I saw that panel, and you were on that panel with Cyrus and maybe Rachel. Oh, yeah, Zach was also on that panel. Zach was that on was, yeah, that, yeah, that, that panel. panel. Yeah, that panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, like in, it was in June. Yes, it was a few yeah, it was before I moved to Boston. June. I it was in June. 
Yeah. yeah. Actually, I didn't even realize that you were all on that pile. I'm just really yeah. realizing now that Zach was on the pile. <laughs> so um, I got, so I knew Brian before you did? Yeah, I think. Yeah, so. you did know Brian before I did. <laughs> so I saw Brian on that panel. He was, um, the stuff you were saying made me realize that, oh, you're not in the US right now. Yeah. So yeah. I saw that Cyrus was on the panel. And by that mm -hmm. time, I knew Cyrus had committed to Stanford. And mm -hmm. so I reached out to him. And I guess maybe he found it a bit weird. So I was like, can I have Brian's number? <laughs> 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 can you put me in touch with Brian? And then he was like, why like how do you know brian and then i explained why i wanted to get in touch with you it wasn't anything shady um or sneaky and so i sent you a message i also like messaged you on group me i was like <laughs> covering all my bases i sent you Wait, really? message, group me everything did we exchange messages on group me we did not know no, you, you were i hardly use group me yeah so i um we, we connected on whatsapp and um yeah. I don't know what it was, but I I think you're one of the few people who like when you first like talked to them, like I knew we were gonna be friends. Like I just like yeah, me too. That. Me too, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I could just tell, like I like yeah. the spirit of the conversation. I just knew it. I just knew. I don't know who Ryan is, but we're friends. Like he doesn't know we're friends, <laughs> but we're friends. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that's how I um that's how I found out about Brian, got to know him yeah. a bit. And we've kept in touch like pretty regularly since mm -hmm. then, I would say. Mm -hmm. That was that was definitely in June. Or after June, I would say. And I knew this because I was anxious about like if I was able if I was going to be able to come to the US. I was still applying for a visa then. The US embassy was still closed in Ghana. And then I knew that all my classmates were in the US. Like literally all of them. We are 100 in the class and there were 19 in the year. And so I knew that like it would, because I was wondering if the school would go through the lens to like try to make staff virtually just so I could participate in it. Because Yale was going to take a hybrid like sort of like class schedule. So there were going to be some things that were going to be in person in fall that I wasn't sure about. And so when you reached out, in some ways, it was very comforting. You know, like, not to say Misery Labs Company, but I felt, I felt like, you know, like somebody else could relate to what I was going through. And also we could share ideas, we could share resources. And I would say when you were able to schedule your, your sort of like your interview, like it gave me a lot of hope that like, okay, if other international consulate offices are opening up, then I should expect that our embassy will open up soon. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Eventually, it didn't. I had to do all of four semester in Ghana. It was fine. I eventually made it to the US 1st of January 2021. So, mm -hmm. Yes, it worked out. Yeah. yeah. But I'm really glad that like we connected at that point in time. And I'm really Thank just you. glad in general to, to know you. Um, I'm glad you're here with us today so we can get to know you a little bit better. So maybe we should take things like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna go back in the time machine. And I want you mm -hmm. to tell us like tell us a little bit about five year old Brian. Like who was he? Like what was he interested in? Oh wow that was a, wait five year old that was fifth grade. Wow. That was probably first grade. Mm -hmm. I was bad in class. I remember first grade really well. I came home one time with like the first position on my report card. <laughs> and my mom is a teacher. My mom was like, not this family, not this household. I would not have it. <laughs> but see, five-year-old Brian was um I I mean like if if you've ever spoken to her, like somebody who was raised in an African home, you know that like when you're born, like you are born with a profession. And there are four allowed professions. You mm -hmm. can either be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disgrace to the family. <laughs> <laughs> there are no other. So I'd say definitely medicine was one of the few professions that I was introduced to. But I really wanted to be a teacher because both my parents are teachers. My mom was a preschool teacher. My dad was teaching in a computer school. And so so, and then like, you know, because my mom was a preschool teacher, we were always having like children my age or similar coming home with her when their parents were late for school, like picking them up or their 
kids were sick, my mom had to bring them home and the parents had to take them from their home. So um, I saw that, I really enjoyed it. I had a younger brother. I was always helping him with his homework and the rest. So I knew by then I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like other things I was doing outside of school, I was very active in church, I would say. Where like church plays and choreography. That's as about as far as I don't think I was very social then. I at least like as not as social as I think I am now. Um, but yeah, I was just living my you know your best my, life, my <laughs> best life, guys. <laughs> I don't think oh that's the God, biggest um honestly. Like, what were our problems when we were five? Maybe homework, maybe household chores, and literally that. Your, your next problem is deciding what you play after school. <laughs> I, I, I look back to those times with mm-hmm. a lot of you know, fondness and appreciation. And how did things change over time? Because you said you were 31st in the class. And I remember back back in those times for me too, like they would they they made no like they ranked you. You knew oh, where you are. are. In the, in, in the grand scheme of everything, you 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 knew your position, and I feel like I I relate to that on some levels because mm-hmm. I definitely did not start out as someone who was like top of the class. Yeah. I definitely started out as probably the person who maybe people 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 weren't probably people weren't like looking looking at me for like yeah. you know, becoming something in life. So I I kind of I was I was I'm so embarrassed to admit it, but a little bit of a bully. When I was like very, very Whoa. young. <laughs> oh no. Oh my gosh. Part of the problem. Wow. Wow. But you know, I turned my life around. You did. And I, I'm pretty sure you did too, Brian. So tell us what, what did that look like for you turning your life around so you didn't become a disgrace to the family? <laughs> So I would say, um, I do remember like taking home that grade with like the 31st position in class or so very well. I mean, I think perhaps a lot of my memories probably will be fabricated based on what my mom is telling me. But my mom told me that like she knew instinctively that that wasn't like a portrayal of my performance because I'd been homeschooled for quite a bit. And my mom is a teacher. She was assessing me. She knew what I was capable of. And everything so her immediate sort of like blame was not to me it was like okay what's happening in the school that's like not stopping this right and also we had moved to a new place and so i was i was in a new school too as well so my mom sort of like understood all of that and the rest and i would say she probably just because i wasn't going to the school where she was teaching me she didn't want to teach me so or she didn't want me to be in the school where she was teaching me so i would say um it was a lot of like home training, maybe speaking to me, trying to get to understand what the problem was, speaking to my teachers too. And it was like, whenever she spoke to my teachers, like they were all like, oh, if they asked me a question in class, like I could participate. Like on their own sort of like in-class assessments, I was like doing well. Mm-hmm. So I would say perhaps like, it was just a matter of me putting effort into what I was was doing because <laughs> i say it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a, like i didn't understand what was going on and what happened was um, so the, the next term i did so well that i i had to skip first grade oh wow yeah. so, <laughs> wow. Okay. so like the next time like I, I think perhaps like they, they just saw that the previous term was not like it was more of like an outlier than mm-hmm. so and they made me skip first grade and then I joined the second grade. So for a very long time, I was the youngest person in my class, also the smallest, also the shortest in my class, but also the one with the biggest mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I was the loudest in my class, I would say. I was one of those small people who will be heard. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but I I definitely think, I definitely credit a lot of that to my parents and sort of like, like understanding, like, trying to understand the issues, not apportioning blame. My parents, one of the few parents I knew growing up who did not subscribe to sort of like corporal punishment in Ghana. And my dad would give you the stare of like, and that, that's enough. Like he would look at you and you're like, literally you will feel it. <laughs> it, would, it, would, 
somebody, you would just like you know when you're at a party or you're doing something, your parents don't want you to do. And then just from across the room, your eye matches your mom's eye, and she's like, oh, and then you God. get a message. <laughs> yeah, that was what happened. So I would say like, yeah, my parents, and I feel like that also created the atmosphere for us to like approach them with a lot of our issues, talk to them. And for a very long time, we we had very free conversations with our parents and with my parents, and I think that really helped. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're the oldest brother. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Okay, so you're the middle yeah. child. I'm the middle child. So you said um you had aspirations of becoming a teacher early on, and your both your parents um worked in teaching. Um, in different capacities. So what was it about teaching that appealed to you? And how did that interest change over time? Thank you. So one is my parents are both very different teachers. So I go to see different forms of teaching, right? My dad is more of the, I will guide you through the instructions and then I will give you the room to demonstrate, right? So my dad is like, I will teach you all you need to know and then hands off. I give you the opportunity to try. And then if you make any corrections, I'll make you make a lot of mistakes and then I'll come in and then I can correct you. And my mom is more of like the hands-on. So she's asking you questions every step of the way. She's like trying to get you to see and all of that. And they also taught very different populations, like age ranges, right? My mom was teaching kids and my dad was teaching young adults. And so um, I would say like, Learning from both of them, and you know, as a child, like your parents are your role models, you look at up to them for everything. Like, I just naturally ended up incorporating a lot of those, like, teaching tactics into, like, even my relationship with my classmates and with, like, my my brothers and, like, people in my community. So I remember, like, in class, like, I was that student that when the teacher is not in the class, I would go to the board and I would request we study something. I was that student. I, I hate to admit it now, but I, <laughs> I really was that student. Were you that student asking, Miss, you didn't assign us homework. Were you that student? Thankfully, I wasn't. Thankfully, <laughs> I wasn't. But I, like, if, if I, okay, it depended on if I did the homework. So like sometimes <laughs> teachers will forget to like take homework mark. Like if I did it, I would be submitted. <laughs> like you would. <laughs> so you can imagine the smallest boy with the loudest boy who is rushing. I was a teacher's pet. Yes, all my teachers loved me. Ah. So I think about where did that bird go? <laughs> yeah, so like I was demonstrating a lot of these skills back home. Like a bunch of my classmates would come to my house for me to like help them with assignments and the rest. And you know, like it just came naturally to me too, because I would say my parents tried to inculcate the habit of like understanding and asking questions. So it wasn't like like the typical roots memorization that was happening in a lot of Canadian high schools. And so it's like I didn't do a lot of like after school studying just because like if I understood it in class, that would be enough. So to kind of and then I would reinforce that like material through like teaching and like helping others understand. Yeah. And in some ways, that's how I still study. I'm not even into that. That habit of like, you know, learning or teaching as I learn is still one of the surest ways I can really keep stuff up there. So how how does that like aspiration of going to teaching and using teaching as a method to like consolidate all what you have learned? Like how has that transformed into like your passion for medicine and like how has that helped you in your kind of journey to medicine, maybe even in med school, like how's that, how has that helped you? Yeah, so I would say um, a lot of teaching came with a lot of mentoring too, right? So it's like, I mean, like if, you, if you're a teacher, part of your job is to like try to put yourself into the shoes of the person you're teaching and sort of like try to conceptualize how they are approaching the material and in some ways like model behavior for them to like follow, you get me? And so the decision to go into medicine, right, came from like a string of different influences, if you get me. But there was, there was a particular event that threw me, or that got me thinking critically about health, our healthcare system back home in Ghana. And so, I mean, when I was in 2013, 
I think I was like, no, 2010, I was around 13 years old. I would say my grandfather, who my paternal grandfather, my maternal grandfather, sorry, who was also a teacher, um, all lost his life, unfortunately, in Accra's largest hospital, that's Kolebu Teaching Hospital. And in Ghana, it's like we, we have like major teaching hospitals. We have about two of them. One in sort of like Okonfanoche in the Ashanti region that serves sort of uh, like the upper sector and then the, the biggest one in Accra, which serves the major sector. And they are also like referral hospitals. And so they're hospitals that people get referred to when their cases are severe from all across the country. So my granddad didn't actually live in the capital. But because of how severe his case was, he got transferred to Kolebu. And unfortunately, because of the way our healthcare system is to, when a case gets that dire, where you have to come to Kolebu, the prognosis are not very great. Because usually it means like, you know, you have to go through certain procedures that like there's just a specialist one in a country and the person is based in Kolebu. There's nothing to do. Or you need certain resources that only are within Kolebu. So when my granddad got transferred to Kolebu, I could tell just from the mood in the house that the situation was sort of dire. And that required that we go to visit him regularly. And I was semi-close to him. He definitely was one of the biggest influences growing up for me. And just because of like the numerous stories my mom would share about him and his life. Um, but that experience in Kolebu was one of the, I would say, the few opportunities I had to really bond with him in person. Like, I sort of knew about him through like the legacy of stories and what my mom shared with me. Uh, like Kolebu was like that sort of like granddad, grandpa, bonding atmosphere. And I was a huge storyteller and I would always tell him stories and stuff like that. And I remember there was one time, I, I remember it so well. And I would say like, this probably was the moment we were in the, we were in his, in the ward, right? There was, there was nothing like privacy. Because there's just so many people. So every family is clustered around the bed and we're around him. And his wife, who is my grandma, was sort of like sobbing because he was really de deteriorating very fast. He's a gigantic, tall person. And he was very lean, very skinny, very feeble. And so we're sitting down there and my mom had, he was, she was just like waiting for a doctor to come see him. She's, they, they, they had been like going up and down for a while. And they eventually got a doctor to come. And unfortunately, I would say the doctor's demeanor just seemed rushed, just seemed not present, just seemed like, and he, he didn't mean to make words with this. He heavily suggested that if we wanted his attention, we needed to bring my granddad to his private sort of like outpatient, sort of like removed from the Kolebu network where he can give that sort of attention. And that is extra money and I'm from a low-income family even in Ghana I'm still considered low-income and so that was going to be very difficult for my family to be able to afford right so I remember that night where on our way back home and my mom was just sobbing you know just trying to like think about ways in which because like eventually it seemed like that would have been the only way for them to get attention for it. my family it was very dark nights at home and I would say like two nights later he passed away so for me, it was like at the age of 13, you know, it was very, very much, and that was the first of like loss we had experienced in the family. It was very palpable for me. I felt like, wow, this was unfair. I felt very angry. I felt very angry at the doctor. I, I, was, I, 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 I just felt like he was the reason my granddad wasn't alive, right? But then I would say, like as I like as I grew, I got interested in like you know like what conditions existed for the doctor to be in such a position of like power and influence to manipulate the situation in that case, you know. And to be fair, like you know, doctors in Ghana are not very well compensated, so a lot of them have to be taught to, like you know, be partnering with like you know private hospitals and stuff like that to be able to make ends meet because. They, do, they are not getting their due, do you get me? So I began to like understand all of it and I realized that the problem was not just a, a singular event, right? There were so many other people for whom this was a duty of care, right? And that it was like a larger systemic issue of health equity and access, not just in Ghana, but across the continent entirely. So that could be interested in healthcare. 
by then, you know, my my mom had been calling me daughter since I was born, right? So at some point, you know, it's like, it will get in, but it wasn't palpable for me until then when I started to think, okay, you know, I have a love for the sciences, right? I'm naturally inclined towards like STEM-related fields. I'm great with people, interacting with people. I love to hear people's stories. I'm a big empath, so I can feel a lot of emotions that people do. And I love to teach, you know, and a big part of, you know, medicine is teaching as well, right? Teaching our patients, you know, modern behaviors for them. So in so many ways, the jump from teaching to medicine was not a call because I felt like I could still be a teacher in so many ways, even within the context of medicine. But that also inspired me to like consider educational opportunities outside of Ghana. And also with tools and resources that I may not necessarily get in Ghana, like opportunities for research, opportunities for work lab research, opportunities for you know, scholarly engagement as early as in college. And so that got me interested. Um, after high school, again, I couldn't afford to go to college. So my assistant headmaster in school recommended me for a program run by the US Embassy called Competitive Colleges Club run by Education USA. So they helped me. I was selected as an opportunity scholar. So that means the US Department of State covered the expenses of my SAT fees and prep fees. And I also got a scholarship to an SAT prep center to study for the SAT. So I did that to the SAT a number of times. And then eventually was able to apply and then I came to Stanford. Wait a and, second. Yeah. Wait a second. Wait a second. So yeah. you said you said that. I, I, I just applied and I came to Stanford, but I feel like we're missing, we're missing a couple of details in there. I feel like in order to come to Stanford, you know, there's like so many important things that you have to bring to the table. So um, tell us a little bit more about that stuff. I, I feel like you bring so much to the table and I want people listening to really understand, um, you know, the different parts of you, the different interests that you have. And I know, Global health as it relates to healthcare in Ghana is something that's important to you. Well, what are some other things that um, make Brian who Brian is that you brought here to Stanford? Yeah. When you got in? yeah. So I would say when I was applying to colleges, I was very intentional about why I wanted to go to college, right? And the reason was because, like, the medical school, educational system in Ghana, aside its fault, is good. Do you get me? Like, it's decent, at least compared to other African countries. I'll say Ghana does a very good job of training doctors, right? Like I'll say our inefficacies in our healthcare system has very little to do with our human resources. It's more of like, you know, actual tangible resources that do not exist. So for me, and you know, like the medical system in the United States for international students is kind of a gamble. Let's be honest, because like, you know, you have to go to undergrad and then you have to apply to medical school and then you have to apply to medical school and get funded. And then you have to come to medical school and then you have to apply for residency programs. And then you have to figure out the whole visa situation. It, it just seems longer. And whereas like in Ghana, it, it was more of like a straight through you know, right after high school, you go into medical school and whatnot. But I would say when I was applying to Stanford, one of the few things that I think really helped me was I was very self-aware, right? Like I was someone who was, I could think critically into like what I wanted out of my college experience and which colleges meant that. So surprisingly, Stanford was actually one of the very few top schools I applied to. The majority of the schools I applied to were liberal arts colleges for another reason, right? So in Ghana, right, when you're in high school, you are placed into a particular program. You get me? So it's either you read general science, or you go into general arts, or you go into visual arts, or you go into business, or you go into agricultural science. You get me? So very, very early on, you are sort of like boxing students. Mm -hmm. You get me? And my issue with that is, even at the age of 22, <laughs> You don't even know what you're going to do with your life, right? So how do you expect a 14 or 13 year old to decide, uh -huh. you know, I want to go into the sciences, so I want to go into the business. Do you get me? And a part of the reason why I had an issue with that too is that like, if you're a science student, it was expected that a good chunk of your extracurricular activities were within the sciences. But from very early on, like I said, I always had a loud voice, right? So I was a huge debater. You get me? I love debate. I love the general arts. I love acting. Not so great with the choreography, but you know, I definitely didn't fit neatly into like the science, you know, 
you get me? So I'll say in high school, like I was, I was in the science club. I was one of the vice presidents. I was the president of the debates club. I was on the editorial board. So I was doing a lot of these things just out of pure genuine interest. And during my sophomore year of high school, we, we got invited into a program that asked, that challenged students to come up with a solution in, a, in, a, in your community using science. And during that period in Ghana, we were going through erratic electricity supply. So a classmate of mine and me, we were best friends in high school. He was a head boy then, and I was his, like a, a chief presidential advisor. <laughs> I, really took, I really took pride in my position. But he was the head boy there, and I was a health prefect in high school. And we came together to think about, you know, like, what we could do, right? We were intrigued at the prospect, right? Because, like, you know, we would always see in the news, like, you know, 15-year-olds from India who had built this, or, you know, 19-year-olds in the U.S. who had developed a cure for this cancer or something, right? It really intrigued us. So we took on the challenge. Um, it, it took a lot of thinking critically. In some ways, I would say that was our first introduction to the scientific process, like thinking critically about a problem, coming up with a hypothesis, finding ways to test and whatnot. And we settled on, you know, trying to utilize available discardable resources, waste resources in our communities to generate electricity. So we eventually built a, a, an, electric, an electric generator that runs on ash, and we won the science and tech fair in Ghana. I had the opportunity to represent Ghana. Like in South. all of Ghana? Yeah, it was a national competition, but just oh. a few select schools were uh-huh. participating. So we got the opportunity to go represent Ghana in South Africa. And then hopefully, if we are done all in South Africa, come to the US, right? But unfortunately, the program got defunded. They didn't get you know, the backing that it should have gotten. For me, very early on, it made it clear to me that I wanted to do something in research. The entire concept of research early on appealed to me, right? We were forced to research electric chemistry, understand how batteries work, understand how generators work, understand the electric chemistry of that electrolyte, how ions move about, how electricity is generated. Like all of that were self-learned in our home. You get me? Like I remember the first day we powered a clock. It was like we had these two giant, <laughs> two giant buckets of lye and like electrodes, right? Powering this tiny clock. And like, <laughs> I told you, know, like, when the clock moved, I felt like walls shatter. And I'm not even exaggerating, right? For me, it was like suddenly everything in our textbooks had consequences. Mm-hmm. You get me? It just suddenly felt like this was not for nothing. So I was saying in some ways, like, when I was coming to America, like, bioengineering was not out of the question for me because that experience definitely taught me something about the ways in which I, I approach problems, right? And I felt like, you know, in some ways, like I was able to portray that, not so much the achievement because like, you know, it was more of like that mind shift change. I was able to tell that story about Stanford. And, you know, I grew up in a church. My, my, my dad is a pastor or has been an elder in a church for quite some time. So the concept of like community-based, faith-based service it's also something that I was passionate about. Going into becoming health prefect in my school, volunteering in the city, helping the school nurse and all of that. All of that was born out of like a genuine interest to like, in some ways, like understand the conditions of others and to see ways in which I could use my own skill sets, privileges to impact others' lives. And so like we, we, I was actively involved in that after high school too. And once I knew I couldn't afford to go to college in Ghana, I felt like I was able to tell that story well to, to Stanford. And I feel like, you know, like when I went to Stanford, like it, it makes sense why a student like fits there. Because, you know, it's like, I mean, you go to Stanford now, so you can tell, right? Like there's just, just, just the air of innovation, entrepreneurship and service, right? And I felt like I was able to really explore that a lot more at a place like Stanford, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I could just sit here and watch and see that all the stuff that you did was really intriguing to you and mm-hmm. really came from a place of you really wanting to explore just Mm -hmm. genuinely wanting to put in the work and to understand all these different things which i think 
is something very important for the applicants listening in yeah. here because yeah. they'll hear you um, talking about all this amazing stuff that you did, but it's not just about racking up all these experiences. The way you talk about it to us, to me and Zach, we were just sitting here. It's very clear to me, at least, that all these things are really important to you. And it's not like you just did them and you dropped them and moved on to the next one, but they all came together to, to fuel this desire to move to this ne next level of self-actualization. So Brian 2.0, Brian 3.0, you know. <laughs> and I would say, you know, like in the process, right, and I'm sure you could also attest to some point, like it didn't make sense. You get me? Sometimes you could have very different interests, especially when they, in some ways, like conflict the general expectations for you. Or like, you know, like it doesn't seem to be in the path in which others project for you based on what they look or think of you, right? It can feel very like, what am I doing? But the thing is like, for me, I always knew one of the, my biggest fears was waking up to do something I have been passionate about. I think I'd made a lot of mistakes in pursuing things that I was not interested in and ended up hating them, even was out of Stanford, right? And so I knew that, you know, it's like, I wanted to remain true, things that genuinely make me excited and to explore those as career prospects for myself. Because I feel like, you know, it's like, like imagine like you are 35 or you are 49 and you have to wake up to go to a nine to five where nothing excites you and you're just counting. I couldn't think of a more painful way to live my life. So in some ways, like for me, it was like, okay, I owe it to myself, explore, even if it doesn't make sense in the moment. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's like in some ways, like, you know, they've led me here, right? And like, as I'm going to medicine, as I'm exploring different specialties and fields and career prospects for myself, I'm still experiencing these like conflicting interests and conflicting passions. You get me like, I still want to be a storyteller, but I also want to go into global health. But I also want to teach, like, you know, it's like, it's still not neat, but I feel like, you know, like I still owe it to myself to be able to explore all of these and trust that in the future one day, each of these skill sets will make sense. And if they don't, that's fine. I'm a complex being. I'm allowed to have conflicting ideas. Yes, yes, absolutely. No, 100%. I, one thing I want the, the listeners to also know about you, you mentioned coming from a, um, a low-income background. And um, something that I've noticed for me personally navigating med school is that um, people who do not come from a, a, a first-gen or low-income background, they kind of come in and they hit the ground running. Like they know the lay of the land. And they kind of like know how to align themselves with opportunities. And that has been really, it has made me feel really out of place here at Stanford. Because I just feel like, oh, I'm just so excited. I just want to like explore this, you know, explore that. But you come in and then you observe around you. And you, I overheard a conversation recently of someone saying, oh yeah, to so go into plastic surgery, you need four letters of reckon needed from this, that, and that person. And I was like, how do you know that? Like, <laughs> how i i have no clue about these things so i'm curious about your undergrad experience as you were deciding to pursue medicine in the u.s and how that might have been different from your classmates who were also interested in pursuing medicine in the u.s so there are multiple layers here you were a first um you were a fly student and then you were an international student so tell us a little bit about how how those two things shifted the way you navigated your undergrad education yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I could, like when you were speaking, you were speaking to the soul because I'll say in so many ways, I'm still navigating that here in medical school. I would say a few things. One is the community of support, right? Because I would say coming in as a minority student, right? Like there are so many different layers of being fly, being black, being international. It's easy to come and to just get lost especially when you are dumped into a big school. And sometimes just the plethora of opportunities can overwhelm. And you constantly feeling like, you know, I'm not making the best use of these opportunities. I'm not making, you know, others are doing research. Like you said, like you have people whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were doctors. So they know, like they have, they have, they had a plan coming in. Do you get me? It's like there's a four-year plan, and their dads are writing emails to professors introducing their kids. Do you get me? And then I'm coming in and I'm like, wow, I just finished class. Where is my dog? <laughs> <laughs> right. I absolutely felt overwhelmed my first year. I would say I I I I found a community 
of people, of peers, of mentors very early. And that's, I credit a good chunk of why I am today too. Because I feel like, you know, for every mistake you've made, somebody has made before, right? You know, like there are very few mistakes you make that are absolutely new. You get me? Like, I remember first day at Stanford, we are taking a chemistry test, right? And I was coming from, a, like, you know, back home in Ghana, in our high schools, like, teachers were not very present. You get me? So a lot of you doing well in class, like, stand from a place of, like, self-motivation. You get me? Like, you have to make sure, like, you know, like what the government prescribes as the curriculum, like you are meeting the goals, you are studying, you are testing yourself and what's not. Do you get me? Like I had a, I had a physics teacher who assigned the same physics exams for my entirety of high school. It was like, how am I supposed to learn physics? Do you oh, get me? So you needed to, no, he didn't assign the same physics exam. That's not true. I got the same grade in physics for my entirety of high school. Thankfully, it was a good grade, right? But for me, I was like, how does this reflect my doing now? And so, like, when I came to Stanford, like, thankfully, I had coming in, like, there was the African Students Association, there was my church community, there was my dorm community, there was, like, groups that I joined. And I'm somebody who is shameless about my struggles, right? Like, I would let you know this is it. <laughs> this is what you are getting, right? And I felt like people could relate with that because it was like, you know, everybody, you know, like at Stanford, we had like that Stanford Jackson. Everybody wants to project, you know, everybody says, oh, I'm dying. But everybody is like not dying. It's actually doing really well. It's doing 20 things, has the perfect social life. And nobody wants to talk about their mental health problems. <laughs> you get me? It's a very, very, very common thing at Stanford. But like, I was very, like, I tried in some cases to be anti that. Like, especially when it was with people I felt I could trust, right? And I felt like that openness gave me the opportunities to a lot of help. I remember, like, if you look at my transcript, I didn't start out well at all. Do you get me? One thing that I felt like, people could see and to support and was really helpful in the medical application process was it was the approach trend. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with a very good GPA. I'll tell you another thing that really got me through too was in some ways like by characterizing like my own initiative taking. I still remember so my PI, she was she thought in this global childhood class I was taking and her research work was just so intriguing for me that immediately after the class, like I went back, went to one of my numerous school dads, like we used to call them back home in high schools in Ghana. That's usually an upperclassman who is ahead, who is usually, are usually assigned to us like a mentor. I had some of those, a lot of those at Stanford and like they helped me like you know, think about ways in which I could draft an email to a professor. I didn't even know how to draft emails guys, and whatnot. And the reception was so good. Which is another thing I want to highlight to like warm mentors who are willing to like, you know, take you in and like, I can share a story about like my mentorship experience here at Yale too. And maybe perhaps that could come later. But like my mentor at Stanford, my PI, like I wrote an email, I've never done formal work lab research before, but I'm a fast learner. And so I'm really curious about what you're studying and the rest, right? The research I did with her was not the best part of my experience at Stanford, but it was one of the most teaching experiences that ever there she was somebody who would sit down with you was not just interested in your academic development but your personal development as well and was willing to you know walk you through as many questions as you have because i think a lot of things that people don't realize aside the cultural shock is that people are coming in with different culturally and experience informed schemas for studying do you get me the ways in which i'm visualizing a protein structure is heavily influenced by examples my chemistry teachers use, right? And most of them were using like food sold on the street. Like I have to rethink and to conform to a system that I'm not used to, right? And I think that's the extra burden of being international in the United States mm-hmm. is that like you are going through a reshift. Like being international is a whole class of its own. Let's be honest, right? While your American counterparts are taking. 40 units a semester, you are taking 19. <laughs> you get me? Because you are you're navigating to all of these hoops. You get me? And I think like learning to adapt early 
through like experiences of failures in previous classes and whatnot was also really helpful in adjusting for future classes too and still serves me now even whilst I'm in medical school. Question is like in Ghana, lots of the diseases I'm like introduced to were like the typical right infectious diseases like cholera, malaria, TB, or maybe the non-communicable ones like blood high blood pressure and everything. But here in medical school, I'm now having to ask like you know what is lupus? I've never heard of lupus before in my life. You need to explain it to me and wonder, right? But also like doing the the groundwork of like okay, the professor said this, and I didn't understand. We just let it slide. But we have to understand it and going back on to like really make sure that you know things like this are like things you are really getting here. I would say community support, mentorship, reaching out, not being ashamed of like you know expressing areas of need, being receptive to that. And yes, yeah, just a propensity to try new things, right? Because like a, a good chunk of it is stepping into an area of discomfort, discovering new areas of strength for yourself and building on this as well, where a few of the I think that I would say definitely saw me through, despite all of the blocks and like hurdles of being international, black, fly, and in the United States. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for speaking um, about that. Because I think um, I'm really glad that you also said that an important part of who you are is just making sure that you know you are who you say you are. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like when I Brian on paper is the Brian I talk to in real life. <laughs> like what I do, like you really do. Um, you're you. You're you. You're just you. It's Brian. Like there's no doubt about. It. And I think that's so admirable. And I also want to mention that um, you you talked about mentorship, and you've done a lot of work with F1 Docs. You've been a part of the leadership team since its early inception. So tell. Tell the listeners, you know, what do you do with F1 Docs? Why is F1 Docs so important to you? You've, you've touched on it a little bit, but tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so F1 Docs is exactly what I needed as a freshman in college. And unfortunately, I didn't have that. So I want to, it's like, it's, it's the avenue. It's a very, very necessary avenue. I knew, like, I wanted to be able to give back to people in some form or in some sense. So Cyrus actually told me about F1 Doctors and told me how Azan had reached out to him via LinkedIn. So quickly, literally the same night, Cyrus was going to make the introduction to Azan. I was like, Cyrus, I can't wait for your time. I know you're a busy person. I went to LinkedIn, <laughs> found Azan, <laughs> and I shot him a message. I was like, hey, you're doing this. It's cool. I want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And he was very receptive, Got me on board, and then I, I met people like Zach. I met Rachel, who is also my classmate. Shout out to you, Rachel. I met um, so many people who were already part of this, and there was that shared goal of like making medical school possible for international students, right? And yeah, since then, like every week or so, every other week, at least two times a month, I get a random email from you know someone who's applying who shares a lot of things. You know, sometimes I talk to mentees and i'm like oh this person would be a better fit for you so i talk to them on the phone and a lot of them have actually become very good friends of mine mm -hmm. now because um either through shared interest or through the mentorship we get really well there's some mentees i talk to and eventually we, we discover that you know hey maybe you want to do medicine maybe you want to go into public school one of them actually recently going to yale school of public health so you know <laughs> or like sometimes like you know mentees that you know Sometimes the decision is like, maybe let's take a gap year, let's get a great, um, you know, explore this master's degree, do that, right? Or sometimes I may see and it ends up, you know, it's access to medical school as well. I think that experience for me is something that's is always ingrained in like things I'm interested in, helping others navigate paths, whether it's through teaching, whether it's through modeling behavior or through that. So F1 doctors just seem like a, like a natural avenue for that as well. And one thing I was, I'm also grateful about is, and I'm hoping that the organization will develop into, will be that platform of, you know, international medical doctors who are all trained in the United States, who also actively engage in international medicine and yoga too, right? Like, because a lot of us are coming in, you know, we're comparing the healthcare systems that we that need. That just gave you a couple of snaps. I don't know if you heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's, that's a thing about me. I cannot do slaps well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and then 
you know, it's like I'm I'm talking to Rachel now and the rest, and I'm hoping that you know eventually we can also cultivate that community, start thinking about especially post-corona, right? Like whatever yeah. our different healthcare systems look like, I think that collaboration is key to mm-hmm. you know making sure something like this pandemic of this sort of magnitude doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. I I gave you some slots because I just feel like especially like recently um just kind of looking at my best friend's Indian and like mm-hmm. I reach out to him like how can I help and then realizing mm-hmm. I really don't have a network in mm-hmm. India where, like I don't have an influence and I think having this mentorship platform where you have like if there's anything that like you know China's suffering in the beginning of the pandemic mm-hmm. and then we have a community out there that can help and then once I think just seeing how China helped like other countries mm-hmm. right after our suffering, like just like solidarity, like international solidarity is such an important thing to think about. Yeah. And I could not have said it better than you. Like that was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also feel, I also feel like, and Zach, like I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So if we're, if we're ending up, you know, having a whole conversation, I also <laughs> feel like, you know, like Corona has definitely made us realize how interdependent we are on each other. Because it's like you could be doing well in your country, but the moment you open that border, <laughs> if other healthcare systems are not, you know, doing well, like it will eventually have an impact on you, no matter how much you try to forestall that, right? And like I could even use Ghana as an example. So we took very proactive approaches to making sure, you know, Corona didn't get bad, right? Because we know our healthcare system is not, it's, it's not the best. Let me put it that way, and so. If things got bad, they would have gotten really bad. So, you know, you know, shout out to the government of Ghana and actually lots of other African countries too for like taking early decisive steps. And a lot of them were acting out of fear of Ebola and like what Ebola did to healthcare systems there as well. But it's like taking those proactive approach. But then when those, you know, measures started to get more relaxed, we started seeing surges. So in Ghana, for example, like Ghana officially opened its borders at the end of September, but everybody came home, everybody and their grandmothers came home for December, you get me, and then we have some of our worst, our worst phase of the pandemic in January. So you, you could tell easily that, you know, it's like you can do really well, but then like if we don't in some ways like work together to make sure that like the weakest link is still really good like it could really really undo a lot of the progress that that any individual country has done point well made point well made none of these we're not isolated as countries it's, yeah. it's an interconnected community and um yeah i think this philosophy of thinking about the whole globe is really mm-hmm. important um like you said and i i really also like the part where you said your vision a part of your vision seeing f1 docs playing a role in um thinking about global health and that's some not something i had thought about in that way before but that's an exciting idea because um as we move forward with these we're gonna have more and more mentors and create this interconnected community which i think is great it's great for the mentors to become interconnected as well as the um the mentees and i i really like that so thank you so much Brian. you just you shared so much today like you gave us so much more than um we could have asked from you and you came and you were yourself. So I truly appreciate that about you. And I do not understand how, like, we don't really know each other, but we know each other. It's just- we do, we do. <laughs> I was telling, wait, what was I telling? I was telling Stacey, because I, I was actually in the library with Stacey when, you take, when I texted you earlier, right? And I was telling her, like, how she was like, how did we meet her? I was like, oh, a friend connected us, but I feel like we're an all close and I'm real to that friend. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah shout out to you Cyrus and you're still my brother <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness um yeah so I um, want to be respectful this is what because this is what people say um po- to be politically correct on zoom I want to be respectful of everyone <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're done like we're done like, we out. need to go <laughs> I need to go, so I need to be respectful of your time. <laughs> well, but before we go, I was just wondering, you know, where where will Brian be in ten years? What does that look like? Maybe fifteen. So fifteen, so you can't check it out on same residency. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't even think of residency, guys. <laughs> um, I would say like ten years down the line, like I would say an ideal. 
an ideal career path will be one where I could intersect a lot of my interests. Can you hear me? So as it stands now, I'm very interested in working across the African continent with different, you know, public health systems, ministries of health, international organizations, and the capacity as of a doctor, do you get me? But also as, as an expert on African healthcare systems, do you get me? So I definitely want to be somebody who takes the pains to understand critically, critique, and to offer solutions to the system. But then I also want to be in a position where I can, my obviously satisfy my passion for clinical, you know, patients seeing, right? So I'm hopefully doing a bit of that, both in the US, back home in Ghana, and where I get to see patients for a portion of the year. Um, I do want to become a writer. So, and I'm talking of fiction, right? Like, not like I'm, I don't know if I can inspire anybody through motivational work, but I do, I'm a big fan of like fiction, especially like, you know, black literature. And so I definitely do want to write. Hopefully I would have a family settled down, maybe with some kids, who knows? But like, I, I think about this, I do, like, you know, I think of like practicing, teaching, I may be affiliated with a university of some sorts, informing, you know, policy relating to healthcare systems, you know, working with different groups and key players within healthcare systems in the continent, and, you know, streamlining that process as well. Um, outside of that too, I'm, I also have like a different career objectives in education. Because one thing I also realized is that when people are more educated, like it's, like it's one of the biggest social determinants of healthcare. Mm -hmm. so improving college access, that's what I focused on during my gap year. I did nothing related to health. Actually, I did something related to health, but a lot of my gap year, I worked with a college access program and the work that we did have been phenomenal, right? Uh, we're looking at post evals and I'm looking at the numbers and they look really good. So hopefully continue on that to hopefully start thinking about strengthening educational systems, universities, research institutes, back home in Ghana, where we can begin to train on world standards so that people don't have to leave and people can stay and be retained. You get me? And like we keep saying, Africa is the present. You get me? So thinking of like opportunities back home, both for diasporic Africans, but for people who are interested in investing back in the continent by way of businesses and the rest. Because one thing that I personally feel our healthcare system needs to shift from is from like a charity philanthropy field one to one that is sustainable, right? Because even the poor are bankable, you get me? So finding ways in which we can structure either health insurance programs or what have you, such that they are putting health access and equity at the forefront, but are also not very dependent on you know, public and foreign aid that they can run and sustain themselves. And I'm excited for, you know, upcoming things like, or things that have actually been put in motion like the African Free Trade Agreement, right? A continental wide initiative to expand markets for businesses, right? I think advance like that and, you know, you know, the settling down of democracy and passing on from government to government. And like Twitter recently announced its stake in Ghana and it, and I was in its headquarters on the continent for the first time, right? Like things like that make me excited about the future for the continent. So I'm hoping to be able to be in a position where we can position a lot of those as well into the healthcare system and seeing which ways in which the healthcare systems can benefit from these very exciting prospects for the continent. Amazing. Brian, yeah. a visionary, a man with a vision. <laughs> and so many things. That was wonderful. Thank you guys. Uh, you guys are, uh, I felt like this was not an interview. <laughs> We're just like cheerleader <laughs> today. Honestly, I'm just going to finish watching the Harvard video because I'm like, I need to analyze and criticize well. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunities to share and to speak. And so, you know, I feel like, you know, these conversations are the things that make us, you know, in some ways, reground you in what you're doing. So it's an, it's an opportunity for self-reflection for me as well. So thank you. All right. I think we have to do a part two with you, Brian. Maybe next season. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. We'll just do it ne next episode, part two. <laughs> <laughs> so that is wrap for this week's episode. I am personally so inspired by Brian's journey. And I cannot wait to find out um, where the future takes him. 
Yeah, Zach, one thing's for sure. Brian is definitely going places. I mean, he has so many diverse interests. I just know he's gonna he's gonna be making ways in global health, innovation, all those things. So mm -hmm. uh, let's let's all keep an eye on Brian. He, he he's, <laughs> he's definitely gonna be a star. He's already a star. Yeah. Uh, speaking of stars, uh, next week we'll be interviewing Cyrus Buckman. He is currently a second year medical student at the Stanford University School of Medicine. And I personally got to know him uh, because we shared a um, ping pong match at Vanderbilt when we we're interviewing um, there. Yeah, uh, Cyrus is actually my classmate. So I've gotten to know him quite well. And I can tell you all, you know, he's, he's, a, very, he's a very interesting person. And he's like so much to share. So tune in to next episode if you want to hear a little bit more about Cyrus's journey to becoming an F1 doctor. So in the upcoming weeks, we'll be releasing our subsequent episodes every other week on Fridays at 12 p.m. EST. We are so excited for you guys to hear the inspiring journeys of our mentors towards medical schools. So if you like our podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and spread the word for us. Since you guys were the one that listened to the end of the episode, there is a little bonus blooper reel for you guys. Um, so Brian, Shade, and I sat down and watched the Harvard Medical School um, WAP video, the parody video that we have made for our showcase. And we viewed the entire video, made commentaries, and it's a lot of fun. Hope you guys will like it. Oh my gosh, so um, I saw the Harvard parody music video <laughs> in house i need to go watch it oh oh my god can I put it on wait play for you brian wait, can we play this now yeah yeah you can i will share a screen i will share a screen i got it i got it i'm on i'm on it too even oh, though wow, we need to pause <laughs> when you get on the screen oh no oh no um you're co-host i'm co-host unfortunately i have a blocker and youtube is on one of the block lists can't access YouTube. Wait, you blocked yourself from going to YouTube? Yep. Yeah, I also have that. So. <laughs> Do you self-control? Uh, like, can you share today? I, you know what I used to do? Uh, I used to have a really bad problem. So what I would do was I would, I had self-control, but I would change the time on my computer so that. Today, oh. <laughs> I just got self-control. Don't teach me all these. No. <laughs> I feel like I'm too lazy to go to that because I know how to do that. I'm just too lazy to like actually go to setting and change it and yeah. Or I can just show you guys on here on my phone. My phone. Yeah, you can phone. do that too. Yeah. But I did. I in my. I mean, lab. Turn the safe. Put the lock on. I lock my phone when I'm studying. So it's a parody of WAP. Um. Oh wait, wait. I, wait, was it your school that that I think I saw that. I thought it was Duke for some reason. Or you no, like, no. CSF also use WAP. Oh. <laughs> That's me running. I can tell. <laughs> and then me laughing too. Not me. Me? You. <laughs> Well, I can hear well. The sound is not so great, Zach. Um, I can't hear anything, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. No. Oh, why Let don't you think I can that? look it up on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. Look it up on YouTube. You it it's, it's called it's, Doc. It's called Doc Seat Harvard Medical School. You know what part I really like? This meeting is being recorded. <laughs> I just like all that, like, oh, certified peak seven days a week. <laughs> that was amazing. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, like, um, I would have been in the dance, but then uh, we were busy that day. And my program was busy, so a lot of us were not in it. But that's fine. Oh, it was posted yesterday. Yeah, it was posted yesterday at 6 a.m. Yeah. How many YouTube views? I know that's important. <laughs> We are We were featured in the Boston Universe, a Boston like um newspaper already. Okay. <laughs> we currently have 55 5400 views. Okay. 
Awesome. Dad? On YouTube? On YouTube. Okay. I'm going to, I watched it on Instagram. Yeah. We all posted on Instagram. It was so like oh. great. We all loved it. Being recorded. <laughs> Wait, it was that in the, in the video? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh my God, this is so real. There's some dogs in this house. 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 I said certified geek. Seven days a week. Oh my God. Did you see her act? She was like, ah. You know the funniest part was the, the when they were the, the dentist students with the uvula. Yeah, it's like oh the uvula. I was like that's the best uvula I've ever seen. Out of breath, baby, got a charge. Videos long and extra hard. Put an anatomy right in your face. Swipe and slides like a credit card. Hop on Slack. I wanna rent. Camera off. Don't say I can't. Thumb in my mouth. Bag in my eyes. Not ready yet. Don't wanna scribe. Give me no question. Got me surprised. What even is the compliment, guys? I want you to park those Mac proteins right on this little cell wall. Not precise, but makes it like I don't cheat, but let me tell you how I got this key. Roxbury Mission Hill, Clutch Corner, Vanderbilt, quit with the boss and got a of facial skills. Can't take BPs, presentations, give me chills, but gonna practice anyways. Gotta kiss some ill pal. Hey, worthy that hit. Ask for anything, we even spike that dip. You ain't gotta memorize every little thing. Just check head to toe and it'll be okay. Now get your scope and your coat for this Harvard MD. Got a Patagonia just to flex. I'll be a Harvard MD, but caring for patients. No! <laughs> I think I saw you again. With these Harvard MDs. Yeah, it, it's pretty. Um, yeah, you should watch the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> there was one like in the end, the same. Uh, so Felicita is the one that like made the video, and in the end, the the doctor said, "Oh, I'm gonna depress your tongue a little bit. Can you say ah?" And then the ending, the last thing was her doing. Eh. Oh, <laughs> that was so fun. Oh, I love it. Yeah, is Yale gonna do one, Brian? Yeah, we're going to do one, but we haven't started. <laughs> we have not begun. The season is over. It's over. It really is. <laughs> if you if you haven't started filming yet, it's not happening. At this point, I don't think it's going to happen. I feel like we may jump onto next year's classes yeah. in the background. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what music is going to be hip by then. Yeah, that's true. If you're just like, we're like all voted. We're like WAP. It has to be WAP. And then somehow got the school administration's like approval. I'm not quite sure if they know what WAP is. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. So you know the YouTube version doesn't say WAP. It's WAP. Yeah. WAP. Yeah. Well, it says WAP, but it's like wet and gushing. That's W-A-G. That's not WAP. Right? <laughs> yeah. 